1: Can I ask you to bow your heads with me one more time, and we'll pray together, asking for God's help help as we study his word today. Our Father in heaven, I ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to be still before your presence right now. Please give us hearts that are quiet and receptive. Please give us ears that are open to you and minds that are attentive to your word. Lord, would you help me as I teach to faithfully teach your word? And would you help us all, God, that the spirit of the living God would stir up our hope in Jesus Christ today? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. To understand these words from the prophet Isaiah, we need to imagine that we live 2,750 years ago, give or take a few years, in the city of Jerusalem. That's a long time ago, more than 27 centuries ago, and that's far away. Our city, Jerusalem, that we live in is a great city. It's the city of the great king, King David, and the heir of King David still sits on the throne of David. This is also the city of the temple that was built by Solomon, David's son, which means it's the center of the ministry of the priests and prophets that God has given to our people, the tribes of Israel. Jerusalem is a great city. We have a great spiritual heritage, but. Dark times have fallen over Jerusalem and over us, the people of God. We could talk about those dark times from a lot of different angles. It's a time of moral and spiritual weakness and corruption. It's also a time of great uncertainty and vulnerability. Two centuries before this, the tribes of Israel split between the southern Tribes of Judah, that's where we live, Jerusalem's our capital city. And the northern, tribes of Israel. And there has been constant conflict and tension now between us. We're all supposed to be the united people of God, but we're divided. And now, the the tension and the distrust has gotten to a point where there's a fear of invasion. Our neighbors to the north, the tribes of Israel, have made an alliance with Syria, and they've asked us to join that alliance to help them fend off the other growing threat, which is Assyria, which threatens to conquer us all. And yet our king, King Ahaz, does not trust the Syrian-Israelite alliance, and as a matter of fact, he goes the exact opposite direction. He says, I'm going to align with Assyria so that they'll protect me against Syria and Israel. that sound confusing to you? The politics are muddled. There's a lot of political conspiracy theories going on and a lot of division and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unrest. Speaking of King Ahaz, he may be the heir of David, but the apple has fallen far from the tree. King Ahaz is a fool. He is a fool who refuses to listen to God or to the prophets of God. Isaiah the prophet came and told Ahaz, point blank. Do not make an alliance with Assyria. Trust God. God will protect you. God will deliver you. But Assyria did not, excuse me, Ahaz did not listen. Isaiah made it clear. If you just trust in God, God will keep you safe and make you free and bless you. But if you trust in Assyria, the rod that you're leaning on for support will break and you will fall. It's gonna be bad. Don't put your hope in the wrong place. But Ahaz would not listen. This is typical for Ahaz. Ahaz is a wicked king. He has turned against the ways of our fathers. He has shut the doors of the temple in Jerusalem. He has introduced the worship of foreign idols. Ahaz is even going to go so far as to offer his own children as sacrifice to pagan gods. He's a wicked king. And as happens so frequently, as goes the king, so goes the nation. Our land is filled with idolatry, people worshiping false gods. And as we've turned away from the true and living God, we've also turned against one another. As so often happens, idolatry and injustice go together. We're worshiping false gods and now we begin to exploit and oppress one another. It's a bad situation. Meanwhile, God has not stopped loving us. His love never fails. Somebody say God's love never fails. He's been sending His prophets and the prophets have been pleading with us, repent, turn from your idolatry, turn from your injustice, don't put your hope in foreign kings to save you, don't put your hope in false gods to save you, trust in Me and I'll save you. And yet the kings and the priests and the people have not been listening. They've been persisting and the prophets of God have been warning us And saying, if you persist in your sin, your rebellion, your idolatry, your injustice, God's going to bring horrible discipline to win your hearts back. But it's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. They've been warning us. And yet we have not been listening. Yet there is a remnant. If you want to understand the book of Isaiah, you've got to understand that. Everybody say, remnant. There is a faithful community who trusts God, and who hopes in God's promises. They're a community of hope. By the way, that's the name of our sermon today. Everybody say, the community of hope. Now, if you're still with me, we're imagining that we gathered here are that community of hope, 2,750 years ago. And it would be like a bolt of lightning on a dark night for us to hear for the first time the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah which are spoken in Isaiah 9, because he's speaking to us a powerful word of hope. He's calling us away from the false hopes that the rest of the people are looking to, and he's calling us to the true, real hope. Now, that's important if we're going to think about this theme of hope. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is rooted in the character of God and the promises of God. So when we're talking about hope, we're not saying like, I hope I win the lottery or even less likely, I hope the Thunder win the NBA championship this year. Not that kind of hope. That's wishful thinking. What we're talking about is something that's rooted in the character of God and the promises of God. Does God's character ever change? Do his promises ever fail? Which reminds us this hope is not a fantasy, it's actually the opposite. Learning to hope in God means learning to be anchored in reality so that we are not controlled by the fantasies, the illusions, and the false hopes of this present evil age. I think we need to hear that one again. Learning to hope in God, that's what we're trying to do. Everybody say, hope in God. Learning to hope in God means being rooted, being anchored in reality, so that we're not led astray or held captive by the fantasies and illusions and false hopes of our day. What is the word that breaks forth from Isaiah? Well, he says to us, a son is born to us, a child is given. This child is going to be a king. He's going to be a new king, a new heir of David, not like King Ahaz, he's going to be a righteous and godly king, empowered by God. And God is going to work through this child, born to be king, to rescue God's people and to set everything right. God's salvation is coming. Now, let's notice a few details. First, where is God's salvation going to start? Just geographically, where is it going to start? The first two verses of our text tell us that. Look look at them with me again says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So that's two tribes of Israel in the Northern Territory. But in the latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who walk in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Here's what the prophet Isaiah is saying. That, that territory, the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, Those are that's northern territories of Israel. Those were the first areas to rebel against God. And those are the first areas that are going to be conquered by Assyria. And yet, what the prophet is saying is the place where people first rebelled against God, where God's people first rebelled against him, and the place that was first conquered by Assyria, the enemies of God's people, that's going to be the place where God's salvation is going to start. His grace is going to shine like light in the darkest of the dark places. What is this light going to involve? What's it going to look like? The text continues, verse 3, answering that question for us. First thing it says is, you have multiplied the nation. What does that mean? It means we the people of Israel who have been divided and scattered and weakened are going to be united and gathered and strengthened. You have multiplied the nation and the result is going to be joy. That's what the rest of verse 3 is all about. Everybody say joy. joy. Compares it to two kinds of joy. As with the joy at harvest. So you're a farmer. You've been working hard all year round. You plow in the winter and you plant And the spring and there's work, work, work all year around. Then finally autumn comes around and it's time to harvest. And this whole time you've been working and you've been waiting and you've been working and you've been waiting and you're dependent on stuff like the weather, circumstances way outside of your control. You don't know, is there going to be a hailstorm? And finally, after working and waiting and hoping, harvest comes and it's a plentiful harvest, plenty to keep your family fed all winter and more spare that you can trade or sell and you're filled with joy. You throw a feast, you celebrate. It says also, it's going to be joy like the joy experienced when soldiers divide the spoil. Can you imagine how scary the night before battle is? Most of us in this room haven't had that experience. We've got some who've served in the military in our congregation. Most of us here don't know anything about that. The night before a big battle is coming, that's a scary experience. And yet the battle comes... You're alive, you've survived, you've won, and now you're a lot richer. That's what this is talking about. The joy of victory, of sharing in the spoils of battle. You waited and you worked and you hoped, and now victory is here. It's going to be a time of strength. It's going to be a time of joy. Verses four and five say, God's salvation, His light shining the darkness, is going to look like an end to oppression and violence. Look with me at verses four and five. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. If you don't know what that little phrase, the day of Midian, is about, this week you can go read Judges chapter seven. God's people were outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. They were struggling and they did not know how they were going to survive. And God raised up a little scaredy cat named Gideon and said, greetings, mighty warrior. And I'm not going to tell you the end of the story. If you grew up in church, you may already know it. If not, it's going to be fun to read this week. But the point is God's people were struggling and God worked a mighty salvation for them. And what Isaiah is saying, God's going to do something bigger and better. Just wait. It's going to be an end to oppression. No more injustice. No more powerful people trampling the weak. No more widows and fathers and Uh, widows and fatherless kids and the poor and ethnic minorities being exploited. Isaiah is constantly talking about those people and how they're oppressed and how God hates it and God wants to end it. And then, verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What it's saying is God's going to bring victory and all the evil, violent oppressors are going to be defeated and that's going to result in peace. The last two verses of our passage... Make it clear that this is all going to be done by God. Look at the last phrase of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the salvation of God. And the phrase, the Lord of hosts, that's a title that Isaiah loves to use for God. And, and if you don't know, know what that means, when it talks about hosts, it's talking about hosts of angel armies. So it's asking us to picture Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. I am who I am on his throne and under his command are millions and millions of angels. It's a picture of God's almighty power. And it's saying God is zealous about this salvation. God is passionate about this salvation. God is committed to this salvation. He will do it. But verses four and five tell us that he's going to do it through a child born to be king. For to us a child is born. Verse 6. For to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Now we're going to skip the rest of verse 6. We'll come back to it. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What it's saying is God is going to save the world through raising up a king, a human king, an heir of David... And using him to establish a kingdom of perfect peace, perfect righteousness, perfect justice that will extend over all nations and that will last forever. Does that sound good? And then the second half of verse 6 we're given four throne names. Okay, in the ancient Near East, often when a king, someone who was going to be king, was born, or if someone who was king was being crowned as king, They would be given these throne names, which are titles often depicting how God or the gods are going to strengthen and empower this king to accomplish some good work. And there's four throne names here that we need to think about today. Wonderful Counselor. That's the first one. Mighty God. That's the second one. Third one. Everlasting Father. Third Prince of Peace. Let's talk about those. Wonderful Counselor. Everybody say, Wonderful Counselor. This means... The king is going to be endowed by God with supernatural wisdom. He's going to be a good planner. He's going to be a good thinker, a good strategist. He's going to know how to solve the problems of the world. He's going to be wise. So that's all about wisdom. Second title there is Mighty God. Everybody say, Mighty God. So not only is the king going to be wise, he knows how to solve the problems of the world, but he's going to be powerful with the power of God so that he can get it done. Now, let's just quit imagining for a second that we're Israel 2,750 years ago, and let's just come back to where we are right now, 2020 Oklahoma City. Wouldn't it be great if there were leaders in charge who knew exactly what to do and who had the power to get it done? We've got so many problems in the world. Pandemic problems, economic problems, political problems... Uh, the threat of global unrest and violence and uncertainty. We've got civic unrest, history, generations of racial tension piled up on us and we don't know how to solve it. If only there was somebody with the wisdom to know what to do and the power to get it done. Does that sound like it would be helpful? That's what was being pro- promised. Now let's go back in time again. 2,750 years ago. Third title here, Everlasting Father. Somebody say, Everlasting Father. The the hope here is that the king would not only be wise and powerful, but he would be a king of compassion and justice. Like a loving, good father who cares for his household. So often the kings in Jerusalem had been the opposite of that. They had been exploiters. They had taken advantage of people. They had treated those who they were supposed to care for with compassion and justice as Subjects that they would dominate and use for their own ends. And now the text is saying the promised king, he's going to be a king of compassion and justice like a good and loving father. And finally, he's going to be Prince of Peace. Everybody say Prince of Peace. Peace. Meaning this king is going to be the channel through which God's shalom is going to come into the world. And shalom is one of our words that we say a lot at Christ Community Church. Everybody say "Shalom." shalom. Shalom is not just the absence of tension and conflict. Shalom is the presence of joy and love and wholeness. When shalom is in the world in its fullness, it means every aspect of God's creation is rightly related to God and to one another. We're all flourishing in our individuality and we're all bound to one another in love. It's the world we all long for. So the four throne names here are telling us that the king through whom God is going to set things right is going to be marked by these four things. Let's just summarize it like this so we'll remember. Everybody say wisdom. Power, justice, peace. That is what we're waiting for. Now the question is, uh, okay, how's that going to happen? When is it going to come? Who's it going to be? For us, when we first heard those words from the prophet Isaiah, if we're still imagining ourselves being the original hearers 2,750 years ago, We probably look from Ahaz to his son, King Hezekiah. And we begin putting our hope in Hezekiah. Maybe this is the child that Isaiah is talking about. And as Hezekiah grows up, our hopes increase. Because as it turns out, Hezekiah is a wise and godly king. Hezekiah leads a moral and spiritual renewal in Jerusalem. He opens the doors to the temple that his father had shut. He gets rid of the idols. He reestablishes the celebration of the Passover to remember God's faithfulness in the past. He's wise. Not only that, he's endowed with something of the power of God. As a matter of fact, the name Hezekiah means the Lord strengthens. So he's got the wisdom. He's got the power. And if you look at the reign of Hezekiah, unlike King Ahaz, this is a man who frequently rules with compassion and justice. Not only that, he establishes a, a time of relative peace, of shalom. And we start to feel like, hey, our hopes are being realized. This is good. But if we live long enough, we start to wonder about that. Because late in Hezekiah's life, even during his lifetime, we find that King Hezekiah is capable of acting in ways that are very foolish and selfish. He's thinking about his own time, but he's not necessarily thinking about the future and what's going to come after him. In his pride, after all of his reforms, he shows off to envoys from Babylon, this upstart new empire, shows off the riches of Jerusalem, and the envoys go back and the rulers of Babylon add Jerusalem to their to-be-conquered list. The prophet Isaiah comes and rebukes Hezekiah, essentially, and warns him about his folly. and says, during your son's time, those people are coming back for you and hezekiah responds by saying oh good it's not going to happen in my time now if you're a young person and the kingdom of hezekiah and you hear that story how do you now feel about hezekiah's leadership there's a limit to his compassion and his wisdom and his justice and his power for one thing he's going to die so he's not going to be able to give us the peace forever and sure enough After Hezekiah dies, more kings come. Some of them are good, but most of them are bad. And just like the prophet Isaiah foretold, things go from bad to worse, and people rebel. Even even the kings in Jerusalem rebel against, against God, and eventually, Jerusalem is conquered. The temple is destroyed, and the people are carried off into exile. And now, the community of hope We're not the people living 2750 years ago anymore, but we're their great, great grandkids. And we heard about Isaiah's prophecy, but we're starting to wonder, where is the hope now? Can you imagine being one of the people of Israel, part of that faithful remnant, the community of hope that's listening to the words of God? You're living in exile. You're estranged from your home. You've never seen the temple in Jerusalem. You've only heard stories about it. Basically, you're enslaved. You're totally living in a lifestyle of being oppressed. And you read Isaiah 9. Can you imagine how tempting it would be to lose hope? Can you imagine how tempting it would be to shake your fist at God and say, that's a fantasy. Maybe it helped my parents to believe that. Maybe it gave them some comfort and strength and resilience, but I can't believe that. It would have been really easy to think that way. Many people did, and their hearts turned away from the Lord. But here's something that I want you to hear, family of God. Times of disappointment, of failure, of pain, and of frustration can create the context in which faith withers and dies. But that's not the only possibility. Times of disappointment, of failure, of pain, of struggle and sin can also create the context in which faith grows deep roots and becomes something strong and resilient. Imagine, if you will, a little plant, a little shrub, living out in the middle of a field, In a time of drought. It's not very big yet, about Yehai. high. And it doesn't rain for a lot of months. One of two things is going to happen. Either that shrub is going to wither and die. Or it's going to keep pressing roots down, 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 down until it finds water. A lot of shrubs will die during that season of drought but the ones who remain will be strong and resilient. So the question, church family, is, which are we? Which kind of shrub are you? Are we a community of resilient hope? Or are we going to be those who wither and die? Friends, 750 years pass from the time of Isaiah 9, And still, nobody has come who really lives up to the expectations raised by Isaiah 9. Hezekiah was the closest we got. 750 years. That's a long time, guys. That's a lot more years than America has been around. That's a long, long, long time. 750 years. Faithful Jews, though, they kept praying every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. They kept reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and they said, listen, the expectations that were raised by the prophet Isaiah were only partially fulfilled by Hezekiah, but he's pointing to a hope that is greater and more transcendent. He's pointing to Messiah, a greater king who would come. And they started setting their hopes on the coming of the Messiah and asking, when is he going to get here? And if you do something this month, which I would recommend for you to do, which is to go read the first couple chapters of Luke several times. What you will find is the characters who are surrounding the story of the birth of Jesus were all people of stubborn, resilient hope. They'd been, for generations, 750 years, living out in a barren field with roots going deeper and deeper and deeper. And so Zachariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph, they are people who have learned to wait patiently trusting the promises of God. There are people who have learned to get busy doing good, obeying the commandments of God and praying and waiting and saying, Come, Lord, when will you send the Savior? I think Luke chapter 2, verse 25, in its description of Simeon, says describes Simeon in a way that beautifully captures that whole generation of the community of hope. Listen to what it says. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Did you hear that? He was waiting. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. And as he was waiting, he wasn't passive. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was righteous. He was devout. He was seeking God. He was doing good. He was living in a way that was anticipating the coming of God's kingdom. His eyes were open and alert and expectant. He was a man of prayer, a man of good works. That's what it means to be the community of hope. And sure enough, one day the Holy Spirit says, go to the temple. I have a baby I want you to see. And he looks on Jesus. Some 30 years later, Jesus goes to Galilee to start his ministry. I want you to read how Matthew chapter 4 describes it. Matthew chapter 4, beginning verse 12, says this. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John, the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of shadow of death, On them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What the gospel of Matthew is saying, the king we have been waiting for has come. His name is Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the light of God shining into the dark place in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus on the cross in the resurrection of Jesus, we find out what those throne names really meant. We find out what the wisdom and power and justice and peace of God really looks like. That should be encouraging, but also that should be a little confusing. Because what we see in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is that when the king comes, he comes looking more beautiful and more troubling and more comforting and more shocking and disturbing than anybody had expected. Just think about these throne names again. Think about how they relate to the person of Jesus. The first one was Wonderful Counselor. We said that was about wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. Indeed, in Jesus we see wisdom, but we see a wisdom that's countercultural, a wisdom that was too deep for the world. As a matter of fact, in First Corinthians chapter 1... The Apostle Paul says that Jesus just looked like foolishness to the world. And the message of Jesus, his cross is foolishness to the world. And yet for us, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Think about the words of Jesus and think about his life. What are the words of Jesus? Jesus says, love your enemies. That's not the wisdom everybody was expecting. Love your oppressors. He says, pray for people who hurt you. He says, forgive others as God has forgiven you. He says, it is more blessed to give than receive. He says, the greatest among you must be your servant. He says, give your money away instead of hoarding it. Give to everyone who asks of you. That's countercultural wisdom. That looks like foolishness to the world. And then think about his life. He's humbly serving both his friends and his enemies. The night of his arrest, he's getting wrapping a towel around himself, clothing himself like a servant, and getting down on his knees to wash the feet of the guy he knew was about to betray him. He dresses like a servant. When, when he's arrested and accused, he's silent before his accusers. He doesn't defend himself. doesn't give some great rebuttal. And then he's hung up on a cross where he's killed. And the New Testament says that moment that looked like total foolishness to the world, that's the moment where the wisdom of God is most clearly seen in human history. He's the wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. Everybody say power. Jesus comes with power and authority for sure, but it's a power and authority that looks different than what the world was expecting. He has power over sickness. He has power over death. He can raise the dead with a word. He has power over demons. He commands them to leave and they leave. Jesus can walk on water. Jesus tells the storms and the wind and the waves to be still, and they do. Jesus can turn water into wine. He can feed multitudes with a few loaves of bread. That's a lot of power. And yet, he seems to insist upon constantly clothing himself with weakness. Again, we look at him clothed like a servant, washing feet. We look at him standing before Roman imperial power, Quiet, submissive, strange. And on the cross, we see the ultimate symbol of powerlessness. And what the gospel says is, look at that man, naked, bleeding, arms spread out, mocked by his enemies. And that's the moment in human history where you see most clearly the power of God. Everlasting Father... Don't get your Trinitarian theology twisted, guys. This does not mean Jesus is God the Father. He's God the Son. But what it does mean is He's the King that comes with perfect compassion and justice. Everybody say justice. He came to defeat evil. He came to set all things right, but not in the way people were expecting Him to. Faithful Israelites were praying, Come Messiah! And even the ones who started to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they were getting excited and they were starting to come to Him and say things like, Alright, what's the plan? How are we going to get organized? How are we going to get this movement off the ground so we can overthrow our oppressors? But that wasn't Jesus' plan. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it can bear much fruit. See, Jesus is the king who comes with merciful justice and compassionate justice. The way he's going to overcome evil is by offering mercy to his enemies. So that on the cross, as the Romans are oppressing them, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's the Prince of Peace. Everybody say peace. When he's born, the angels show up. And what are they saying? Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Peace on earth. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. Let me read to you these words from Colossians 1, 19 and 20. It says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through his cross, Jesus gives us peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with our neighbors. And yet, in Luke twelve fifty one, Jesus said this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So what is that all about? Here's what it's about. Jesus has been trying to teach us that the peace that we've been longing for isn't good enough. Jesus has been trying to teach us that the peace that says, get rid of all those bad guys over there, get rid of my enemies isn't going to work because the enemy of God is sin. And that lives inside every one of us. Jesus is coming as the disruptive peacemaker of God who exposes sin and who calls people to repentance in a way that is a threat to the world's power so that often those who choose to follow Jesus are alienated from their culture and even from their families. But he does all that with the promise, if you come to me, you'll find real peace. What I'm saying is the child whom Isaiah foretold has come and he's more wonderful than anyone would have expected, but he's also more shocking and troubling and exciting and disturbing and glorious than anyone expected. At Christmas, we celebrate the fact that he has come. He inaugurated the kingdom of God by coming to live among us, by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. And now any of us who trust in Jesus can be forgiven of our sins, we can have peace with God, we can receive His Holy Spirit. That's the gift of God that we celebrate at Christmas. Advent is about preparing our hearts to celebrate Christmas, but it's about more than that. The word Advent means coming. Somebody say Advent. So this is the Advent season. If you don't know, let me tell you, Advent Sunday today is the, the beginning of the Christian liturgical calendar. So the the annual rhythm that Christians traditionally celebrate is at the beginning of the new year. And Advent is a season leading up to one of the three high and holy feast days on the Christian calendar. Christmas, the day that we celebrate that God has come to be among us, to save us. Easter, the day that we celebrate that our crucified Savior has risen from the grave. And Pentecost, the day that we celebrate that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. Those are the three high and holy days. And much like... The season of Lent is preparation for Good Friday and Easter. The season of Advent is preparation for Christmas. The word Advent means coming. And really, we're talking about three different comings. We're saying the Son of God has come at Christmas. That's past tense. We're also talking about the future tense. The Son of God will come back to make everything new. And we're talking about present tense. Jesus comes today knocking on the door of your heart, saying, let me in. Talking about all three of those comings. And the season of Advent is about learning to live within the tension of those comings. Jesus has come and inaugurated the kingdom of God. But you may have noticed, is there still oppression in the world? Is there still sin in our hearts? We're still waiting for the final consummation of God's kingdom of peace. But as we wait, we learn to wait as the community of hope. We follow the example of saints of old, like Anna and Simeon and Elizabeth and Zachariah. We learn to wait in the fullness of the Holy Spirit with hearts that are yielded to God. With eyes that are open and expectant for what God's doing in our times. With a lifestyle that anticipates His coming. And as the community of hope with our eyes fixed on Jesus, waiting for His second coming, we're also a community that lives to bear witness to the reality of His kingdom. In other words, we live as the sign of the future kingdom of God, which is already present among us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means that we as the people of God, the community of hope, are learning to embody the countercultural wisdom of King Jesus, the wisdom of service, the wisdom of humility, the wisdom of... Prayer and repentance and forgiveness. We, as the community of hope, are learning by the grace of the Holy Spirit to embody the countercultural power of King Jesus. The power which is made perfect in weakness, the power that is manifest in self giving love and service. We, as the community of hope, are learning by the grace of the Holy Spirit to embody the countercultural compassion and justice of Jesus. We're seeking justice, but it's not. The rage that seeks to destroy our enemies, it's the compassion that seeks to redeem our enemies. As the community of hope, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we're seeking to embody the countercultural peacemaking of Jesus, which exposes sin in the world and in our hearts, but always does it not seeking to humiliate others, but to invite them to receive the grace of God. As we enter into this Advent season, my prayer is that God would help us to be a people of hope who turn our eyes away from false hopes that would lead us astray and instead fix our eyes on Jesus, setting our hope fully in Him and learning from Jesus how to live in the present in a way that gives a sign of the future coming of the Kingdom of God. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Lord, I just want to pray again that You would make us a people of hope. If we put the weight of our life expectations and lesser hopes, Lord, we will be disappointed. But Jesus is a hope that doesn't fail. And Jesus is a hope who purifies and sanctifies us as we hope in him. So, Lord, help us to turn from false hopes and put our hope in Jesus. And I pray that by grace, your Holy Spirit would make us that countercultural people who show the world the reality of his kingdom among us. It's in Christ's name that we all pray. Amen.